You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, what news and articles caught our attention, and of course, uh, where we attempt to answer all of your questions. Moritz is out this week, so it's just you and me, Jerry. How are you doing? Great. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, no, I think I'm doing fine. I think we're both struggling a little bit with a cold, so bear with us today. If you hear us sniffling or if you don't feel that there's the same level of energy in our voices, but we'll do our our best. And, and by the way, if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. We love that you are here and we'll do our very best to inform and perhaps even entertain you about systematic investing during the next hour or so. Now, apparently there was a Black Friday back in 1869 where gold and stock markets collapsed after being driven to record highs by speculators trying to corner the gold market. And then, of course, we had Black Tuesday and Black Thursday back in 1929, which I think a lot of people will be familiar with. Of course, the uh, Black Monday in 1987 is probably still clear in some of our listeners' mind, where we had a 22.6% drop in the Dow Jones in one day. I think the biggest one-day drop still in history. Um, but nowadays, we have Black Friday every year uh, with a slightly different meaning, of course. We just had one. Um, but from a trend-following perspective, uh, this year, Black Friday coincided with the end of November, which looks indeed to finish in the black for all the usual indices that we follow, uh, as well on our side for, for, for Don, uh, adding to um, what currently looks to be a pretty uh, good year for, for the industry uh, and... Um, and uh, in terms of my own trend barometer that I uh, publish every day, uh, it finished uh, at a reading of 47, which is only slightly above the average that I've seen uh, since 2015. The daily average is around 42. So not a particular strong finish on that. Um, but I do think the industry probably had a reasonably solid uh, month. And um, as I mentioned, uh, since November is just... Uh, has just wrapped up. Um, we can go through a little bit of the the headlines uh, that we encountered in our uh, trading this month. I mean, from a market point of view, there wasn't a lot of sort of really noticeable market moves. But then when I look at the kind of the breakdown, we still had coffee prices go up by 20% or so, uh, which on our side was the biggest losing uh, position we had. Um, on the other side, on the flip side of that, we had net gas uh, dropping 12% in the month of November, which uh, was one of the bigger winners uh, in the portfolio. But, you know, overall on our side, it was a month that was really led by the, the strong equity markets um, and uh, a reasonably well-bid US dollar, uh, which we both uh, benefited from. And then, of course, offset in parts of a, a, a kind of a sluggish start in the fixed income markets to the month. It, they recovered a little bit towards the end of it. Uh, commodities were pretty mixed for us in November. We had losses in metals. We made some money in meats and in the grains. And the energy sector was pretty, pretty mixed uh, overall. So I don't know how 
how everything panned out on on your side, uh, Jerry, for, for the week, for the month? Yeah, well, it's uh, pretty much the same. Coffee was a bummer at a big rally. Is everyone wants to get long at these big lo at these lows? Uh, cocoa down, up, back down again. So that trade is um, looking like a lot of the other recent uh, new entries for me. Just uh, almost immediate turning into a small loss. So hoping that gold and silver are going to keep uh, rallying and uh, palladium is sort of the gift that keeps giving is to borrow a phrase from Moritz uh, dollar awesome grains short they're good um, so it's a mixed bag but not a lot of good trends uh, crushing it these days I had a few stocks I had a $15 winner in uh, Target one day good earnings and then another day $15 loser in Dollar Tree so that's the way it goes sometimes that's the way it goes sometimes that is true yeah i mean i guess we were a little bit spoiled early in the year where kind of every month turned out to be a positive month for for the industry and for our programs and all of that and then we've had a couple of sort of mixed months um, and kind of bring brought us back to reality this is exactly how trend following is um, and now we're kind of hopefully finishing on a strong note as we come into the end of the year but also the end of a decade and then you know and, and a decade where maybe some investors will feel, sit back and feel that oh yeah i mean that thing about diversification that doesn't really work because i should just have been long only equities and nothing else <laughs> so uh i mean of course we talk about diversification a lot we know it's important um it's um you know it's kind of a uh, humility um uh, you know of about you know it shows humility about an uncertain future. I mean, that's the only thing we know how to to guard against um, not knowing what the future holds is, is diversification. And, and, and I certainly believe that that still holds up. Um, it helps us minimize re regret. I mean, most people don't like losing um, uh, or, or maybe put it differently. They, they, they hate losing a lot more than they like, like winning. Um, so it helps us um, with uh, regret. Um, but of course, there might be some people out there. Of course, we don't know that that still feel that um, diversification really isn't for them. Because um, you know, look at all the people who've been most successful in the world. Um, you know, the Facebooks and Apple founders and all of that. They've been inc incredibly focused in their uh, in endeavors, and and that's paid off uh, really well. So, so diversification is, I think, maybe something people are gonna have to just. Um, um, think about uh, how they want to structure their portfolios, where they, if they see a place for what we do, trend following in their portfolios as we enter into 2020 in, in just a few weeks. Um, what about you, Jerry? Well, you know, just thinking about that, uh, one of the most, most amazing things is that um, on a standalone or long only basis, a lot of the markets that we trade, the currencies and the commodities, they don't really fit in well historically with. Uh, adding diversification without materially minima, uh, reducing the performance. So with trend following wrapped around it, oh gracious, you can add in all these commodities, all the interest rates, uh, longs and shorts in the bonds and the stocks, and you can really create this diversified portfolio, but not without the trend following. And it, I don't know, it, it's to us, it's been working. Uh, it worked for, it's worked for a long time and people need to get the message that, uh, in order to 
preserve capital and reduce risk and moderate your portfolio swings without uh, really reducing mm -hmm. your profit, you can uh, add all these great markets, but not without the trend following piece. Trend following miraculously takes markets that are not good on a buy and hold and turns them into contributors, profit contributors to the portfolio and lots and lots of uh, diversification. So are stocks uh, superior to all these other markets? I don't think so, but it sort of looks like it recently, but that'll probably change as well. Yeah, I mean, I still go back to this point about that there's never really been, uh, or there has never been a white paper written that uh, hasn't proved that by adding a trend following to uh, stocks and a stock and a bond portfolio, um, and that it in improves the returns as well as reducing the risk. But of course, you have to put into that the little caveat about time frame. I mean, it doesn't happen every year. It doesn't happen every two or three, five years maybe. But in the long run, it's still a great uh, way of, you know, building uh, real wealth if you don't want to do what we do and that get into the nitty gritty of just focusing on trend following plus nothing, so to speak. And that's why, you know, it's so important uh, for people who don't like trend following to go to the heart of the matter, which is it doesn't work anymore. So yeah, yeah, blah, 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 whatever you're saying, okay, you've got the papers, you've, you can prove it, you've got the back testing, but it doesn't work anymore. And that's why we have to counter that with, well, maybe we don't have evidence that it doesn't work anymore. So it's a really big battle and it's a point of contention and it's the issue. And so if it does work, then everyone should have their money in trend following because you make the same, you make about the same amount of money, uh, risk adjusted and with materially less drawdowns. And that's why it's so critical that uh, if you're pro or anti, you can get very emotional and very extreme in your opinions on these things. So it's the issue. Is it going to start working again? Is it, is it, is it going to stop? Has it, has it stopped? So uh, Right, right, right. I think that's the point. I mean, I don't think it has stopped working. I think I know a lot of people love saying it has, but I don't think it's true. And I think we have to, um, first of all, I think we have to stop being negative about uh, the performance. The performance this decade for many of the best managers, um, you know, is not materially different. Uh, to what it was back in the 80s. It might be lower than the 90s, without a doubt. There's always going to be a decade that stands out. The same with equity markets, uh, for sure. Um, and, but, you know, uh, certainly in our case, I would say this decade is uh, above the decade starting in 2000, despite the fact that we had 2008, which was a great year, in uh, in in the 2000s. So, um, so no, it, I mean, it hasn't stopped working. But what people forget is that you can't compare... Uh, just the CTA industry and 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 the S and P and say, well, this continues to work because in the S and P, and I don't know the hard numbers, but I think directionally I'm right on this one. It's such a few number of stocks that can you can attribute all the gains uh, that we've seen. Uh, you can pick so many stocks that hasn't done anything or, in fact, has gone down a lot. So, um, so I mean, you know, there, there are many. Uh, you wouldn't buy all the CTAs anyways. You want to find the ones that that have done well and continues to do well, and, and that's just the way it works. Um, but anyway, that was a little bit of a rant this um, uh, today. Uh, let's dive into our usual um, topics. Um, how about some tweets for the from the last week of November? I've got a few here. Uh, we had a, a fun week, high in quality, maybe a low in quantity, but uh, some good things to think about and talk about. Our friend Corey Hofstein had a video that I watched uh, 
came highly recommended about diversification. And so it's mostly a, about uh, stocks. And so I think that it's still some good lessons here. Um, of course, in my mind, I'm always thinking about adding those currencies and commodities in as well. But uh, he starts by saying, uh, risk management begins and ends with diversification, but only if we embrace a holistic what, how, and when framework. Incorporating trend equity strategies may be a powerful way to introduce how and when diversification to a portfolio. So he's just basically saying, hey, how about this trend following thing? It really makes things better and it adds some diversification. Uh, it's gonna make a little bit less when stocks uh, do really great. It's gonna preserve capital when stocks do really poorly. But uh, you have the stock piece of the different stocks or the 500 stocks, long only, so let's replace some of that with some trend. Um, trend equity. That's a great. It's a great term, you know. So he's trying to get to the masses and say, you know, um, not, let's don't talk about uh, currencies and commodities quite yet. Let's just uh, think about how much, how great it can be if you add some trend to your the markets you like. Yeah, I mean, I think that brings up an interesting point, and that is, you know, as we, as we've, um, if we use the the term CTAs, we we know that uh, it it that contain so many different uh, things nowadays but now the same thing can be said i guess about trend following i mean trend following is many different things so putting a label on it like you just mentioned trend equity so it's very specific to what you do i think that's a great way of going about it uh, maybe we have to be diversified trend as as a caption because we we well, that's what we do um and uh, so maybe in the in the next uh, decade we need to be a little bit better on our narrative and our communications making clear what it is we do uh, so people don't get confused but i i did notice that the core has been out with a few um uh things in in that um area uh, i haven't set myself started it in detail but i know that they like or he likes trend and and uh and also the people are up at Resolve that uh, that I think he's worked with on a project uh, in this regard. So, so yeah, I mean, if there are other ways, people can find ways to include trend following in their strategy in the way they look at the markets. I mean, we talk a lot about why we don't like uh, trying to anticipate, why we don't like trying to predict. And I think what's been really tough for people who in this last decade who may have missed a lot a big part of the bull market is just because they are being bombarded by information and 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 people who are trying to predict and their may a frame of mind gets influenced by that and 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 you can say right now well, what do you really want to buy equities at new all-time highs but you could also just turn around and say you know why not buy equities as long as you know where your stop is i mean what if equities will continue for another 20 percent you want to be part of that but you just let the price tell you what to do and when when time is up it's up and prices will tell you when to get out and potentially get short so um, so i think the yeah. more people yeah that reminds me of a of a statement that uh, someone told me when i first started chesapeake a uh, client said uh, you should come in every day and uh, answer this question, uh, do I still want to be long or do I still want to be short? If you can't say mm. yes, this isn't a good trade today, you know, you should uh, get out of it. So I thought to myself, you know, that sounds kind of true. I mean, kind of like a lot of things about cliches in the market, they sound kind of true. Uh, but, you know, I'd always go back and say, well, I don't think uh, my uh, mentor is, 
said this. And I wonder what they would say and why am I not equipped to answer this question? And so uh, the fact of the matter is, I don't want to buy equities at all-time highs today. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that because my system bought them six months ago. So if I, I don't want to do today what I should have done six months ago. I want to have this trade on with lots of profit in it, having followed this trend in the bonds or the stocks or whatever I'm trading. And uh, so I wouldn't do the trade today because it would be a mistake. I wouldn't be following my system. And so I think, you know, a lot of these questions are, do you want to do X, Y, Z? Depends on what is your system telling you? If you have lots of profit built into this trade, then it's much better. You can sit still and enjoy it a lot more if you're following the system, and especially when the trade has a nice profit in it in being, versus being faced with this artificial choice. You know, should I, do I want this position today? I mean, I have no idea. You know, I'm not supposed to buy it today. I'm supposed to buy it six months ago. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Good start to the Twitter um, segment. Um, what else were was happening in in your Twitter feed this week? Well, I was uh, focusing on Meb Faber a lot this week and listening mm -hmm. to some of his stuff and reading his stuff. And uh, there is a good podcast out there with Andreas Klenau, and I haven't got around to it yet. I took good notes. There's some controversial things in there. He's he's a trend follower, or he talks nice about it sometimes. And so, anyways. There's some different things in there that I think we can get into next week. I was waiting for the transcript to get it perfect. So, Meb, get that darn transcript out there. Every day I'm checking the website for this transcript. I don't really want to go by my notes or have to re-listen to it again. But uh, anyways, we'll get to that later. But he did have this one kind of uh, tweet that I thought was pretty interesting. It's about clients. You know, we're always complaining about clients and they can't follow us. We're following the system. You need to follow us as we're following the system for you. And he says in this tweet, uh, nearly every investor I speak to says they base their allocations to funds, decisions on a process, not performance. And I think that is at least partially true when they're buying into a fund, but it almost universally not true when they're selling. It's all performance. Imagine someone saying, your performance is extraordinary, but I'm not comfortable with the process. So we're selling. They don't. Also, rarely... People say process is intact, but strategy is getting crushed. So we're adding to our investment. <laughs> That's kind of funny, right? Uh, yeah. A simple, I mean, a simple check is to add your sell rule discipline when the fund buy is made. You just say to yourself, I'm going to buy this fund. I'm going to buy Dunn or Chesapeake for this reason. And here's how, and here's my sell discipline on both of those. Many funds and strategies can go 10 years of overperformance or underperformance. Does your process incorporate that fact? I would say I've certainly seen some of that this year, uh, where people who took uh, took time did their analysis, and uh, you know before making an investment, um, so they were studying you know as you say decades of performance numbers um, to get comfortable and and to understand uh, what we do, um, but then within you know an investment horizon of only 12, 18 months because it has been somewhat challenging, um, then uh, they decide to reduce or redeem. Um, so so they have these completely two different ways of getting in and getting out of, of a manager. Um, and it's a great shame that that's the way it is. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I think it goes back to what we often come back to which is the behavioral side of things, right? It's, it's, it's you know, they, they emotions play such a 
big role, unfortunately, in how we make uh, decisions. But in finance, you have to really be careful uh, with letting your emotions run. We always get more bullish towards the end of a bull market. We almost get more conservative at the towards the end of a of a of a bear market, and um, so we need to be careful with that. I mean, I um, I've had Andreas Cleaner on uh, the podcast before, and he's a great guest. He has his. Uh, opinions and as you say, you say they're not uh, as far as i recall they're not you know 100% in in favor of trend falling all the times but he he does these things where he tries to to uh, dissect you know can you replicate some of the you know best track records by s- simple rules and and i think i, I did listen to actually mep uh, who always produces great content uh, speaking with andreas and i and, and mep actually was focusing a lot on on andreas's first book uh, following the trend um, which is a great book to to read if you want to learn about you know a little bit more about the nitty gritty of systems, but without getting into the you know every single formula so to speak, uh, but just conceptually how you could replicate some of the good track records. And Mep was saying that Andreas should, uh, and I concur with that. Uh, Andreas, you should really, if you're listening, you should really go and and update your studies to see whether the way you were replicating the performance of some of these managers still holds true or if these managers have actually evolved and uh, performance since you launched your book a few years ago you know has started to deviate more but that would be an interesting thing to see and maybe one day we'll get andreas to join us and um and talk a little bit more about that yeah well i'm definitely gonna tweet a lot about that uh, because he had some controversial things in there that um oh yeah one of them was uh, well, which is, you know, I've talked about this a lot, and I think Moritz agrees to some, I don't know about uh, Dunn, but uh, it's okay. In fact, it's okay. It's, it's okay. But it's between us, you know, us between us guys here on the, and gals on the podcast. It's okay. It's nothing negative to call ourselves speculators, number one. And then it's okay to uh, look in terms of betting. You know, we're kind of placing these bets in the markets. And he says, no. That's crazy. Okay. So we got a lot of controversial stuff to look into. Yeah. At a later date, I look forward to it. And boy, if we ever got him on the podcast, that would be fun as well. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, this Last is time a- I asked him, he had football training with his son, so a football match. So he'll, <laughs> he, it's, yeah, he'll, yeah. He'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a kind of a interesting. We've touched on this topic many times and maybe even today. So um, this is from uh, Morgan Housel again. Really enjoy his stuff. Um, we'll never get rid of gurus because assuming someone knows everything is easier than trying to figure out how they knew one thing. They let us pretend the future is knowable and the path forward is obvious. I think that's kind of a thing about trend following. You're, you're really just shocking the worldview of the person who's not really into it and uh, studied it and had a good experience with it. It's just a shock to the world that we're going to make money on and we're going to lose on the majority of our trades, and we're not going to predict. And you're going to handle this trade every single time the same way. I mean, can't you do better than this? What am I paying you for? So I think uh, this is just an eternal topic of uh, predicting and pretending that we can, can kind of figure the future out. I mean, um, of course, we remember back in the, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of people had all these very bullish predictions about where the markets could continue to go. And and of course, it turned out to be pretty much the high um, before a major, um, you know, crash or, or whatever we would call it. But 
what I think is interesting with with this is that if you're if you're right, and if your predictions is right, why not just wait in any event, just for the price to tell you when to get in, when to get out. I mean, because you you know that that if you're right that the market will go from from point A to point B, and let's say B is is a lot higher, well then price will tell you and guide you as to when that's going to happen. So I find it a little bit difficult for people who can't understand, as you say. I mean, I think a lot of people are shocked that we don't look at any news and we're just simply looking at the price. But it shouldn't be that surprising that that works because price will always tell you where you're heading. Yeah, and I've said many times, how much better can they be? I mean, how much better can you just discretionary or use other inputs than price? How much better can you be to just... Um, know when to buy that low versus just heck wait for the thing to rally a tad and then get in and place your stop loss and then another thing we have going for us that uh, turns it all around which makes uh, a system almost impossible to beat and we've seen these in studies by Kahneman and we've tweeted and talked about it and that is following a process and following Mm -hmm. rules every single time that just puts you in another category and uh your ability to take money out of the markets is just incredibly enhanced because you have a process and a system and rules. Because even if you get it right a few times, the chances are you're not going to be able to outproduce the price and following the trends uh, with a stop loss and taking small losses uh, with some other types of approach. You know that's may not work all the time. And I think you know there's a lot of evidence. I mean, there's, obviously, there's been a few books released this year talking about systematic uh, or quant-based investors who've been incredibly successful and in taking out a lot of money, hundreds uh, or billions of dollars, in, in one case more than $100 billion following a quantitative process. Um, but if, even if you just look at the rankings of the most successful uh, managers uh, right now uh, within the broader hedge fund category, I bet you 90% of the top 10 are quant funds. Uh, we know from last week's talk that um, more capital, Lewis Bacon, which I'm not, I don't know that they're quant-based. They probably use some quantitative analysis, but I guess they're kind of a more discretionary global macro manager and how they are finding it too difficult to, to do what they do. So they're uh, returning capital to investors. And this was interesting. In the conversation I heard, um, I heard this morning a conversation with um, uh, Mike Batnick and, and Ted Seides, uh, about the state of the hedge fund uh, industry, um, and we can talk about that later. But one of the things that uh, Ted Seidy said, uh, who obviously knows the the uh, from an allocator point of view, know the manager environment well, he says that there's always you you can always find managers who are kind of under the radar, who don't want to be in the limelight, who don't want to be the biggest. They just want to focus on delivering really good, solid above average return but nobody you know only the a smaller subset of of allocators will will know about them and and that's exactly what they want they don't want the big headlines uh, uh you know to be about them but they have no problem in delivering that alpha still and i think it's the same we can find names like this in in our industry for sure um so um yeah anyway that was a little bit of a tangent i guess what else uh, did you find Jerry, this week? Well, you know, uh, as I said before, I feel like that uh, I'm on a mission to find, uh, read any sort of article and I can turn it into uh, something that's relevant to trend following or why trend following works. And so I found this article in the New York Times and it's 
was the, one of the most popular tweets I've had, uh, believe it or not, and it's the title of it was "The Zen of Weightlifting." <laughs> and uh, okay, so the article, the quote I pulled out of there, it goes like this: "To advance beyond the low-hanging fruit in any meaningful discipline, you must get comfortable spending time at the plateau, a form of purgatory. Keep showing up and pounding the stone." And so I feel like that's what a lot of traders and systematic guys feel like is that uh, we're in purgatory a lot of time and uh, we're getting criticized. We're out of the mainstream. We're trading crazy commodities and shorts and a systematic approach. Oh, my God. Can you please just limit it to one dumb thing or one crazy thing at a time? And we can't do it. Uh, so we're kind of in purgatory. We have, no, we have very few people who uh, are feeling it the way we feel it, like uh, the stock people can kind of take comfort in each other's miseries. But uh, I just thought it was pretty interesting that so many people like this and sort of, I didn't even mention tw uh, trading at all, but I had a lot of likes on that one. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, keep showing up. Is, I mean, that's a great life lesson, right? I mean, uh, uh, in any industry you're in, but it certainly is very important in our industry. And and, and and part of the whole philosophy about taking small losses is that you can keep showing up every day and still, you know, put on your trades and, and be, you know, uh, you know, rather than uh, shooting for the for the one or two big home runs of your career, but with the risk of you blowing up uh, much before that they uh, they occur. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that's always nice when you see an article like that, that uh, seemingly has nothing to do with what we do. But then you find all these parallels along the way. So, uh yeah, that's a great, great one. I also had a, it was a nice tweet uh, from Wayne this week as well. And I've heard of this before, you know, and I'm really confounded a little bit by simple systems or sim uh, keeping things simple, but not too simple. And I dislike hearing statements that I can't like get a really good feel for what the heck, you know, is really meant by these statements. And uh, Wayne starts out by saying 25 years of quant modeling wisdom in a nutshell Quote, uh, the goal is to master the balance, balancing act of simplicity versus complexity, of establishing a core thesis that is profound, insightful, and interesting, and yet expressed in a single sentence. Don't be simplistic, but keep it simple. I, oh my gosh, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I can't figure out exactly what I can do with that. So I, you know what I did? I went to the dictionary. Yeah, that's exactly, I, I typed in simple versus simplistic. So I, this is what I tweeted, and this comes from uh, you know the googling that phrase simple versus simplistic. Simple is straightforward, I'm so, plain, easy, ordinary, or uncomplicated. A simple solution to a problem is usually a good solution. A simplistic solution is too easy. That is, it oversimplifies and fails to deal with the complexities of the situation. Ah, okay, a little bit better than Woody. He, he, we, we triple team this subject here. He goes, using an algorithmic system that takes bets on both sides of all liquid markets is prudent because of its humility. Humility is the proper response to a game with infinite dimensions. Making long only bets by the seat of one's pants is the most complex yet mindless approach. Hmm. I mean, I think this is kind of a, a blessing and a curse, right? Because um, I think the blessing is that we actually that's what we try to do i mean in in a sense when we build our models we keep we we, we tell people you know don't overthink it good and good enough is good enough and don't don't make it too complicated because it won't hold in the long run you know you lose your robustness etc cetera, etc cetera. 
But I think at the same time, as an industry, we've been probably using um, the word simple um, in, in the wrong way because I think a lot of people have ended up thinking that what we do is so simple, they can do it and it shouldn't cost any money. Uh, they shouldn't pay for it. So um, I think the 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 the, uh, the 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 not the I don't want to use the word complex, but the the real valuable thing we do is we take something that is inherently complex. I mean, financial markets are inherently complex, and we 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 find simpler rules to extract profits over time. So so that's the that's the challenge we uh, we have. And I, you know, and I, and I, I, I mean, of course, you can go to and, and read a book about like Jim Simons that we've talked about so much in the last month. Uh, that's not simple what they do, uh, for sure. Um, I'm not even sure they know exactly what they do because it's kind of machine learning stuff by now. So that's not what we do. Um, we know what goes into the model. We know what to expect to, to come out at the other end. Um, and I will say that certainly when I look at what we do on our side as a firm. The way we do things today compared to trend following maybe 25 years ago, I would say it's more sophisticated. I mean, there are more things that goes into the process, but we're still trying to um, make it a relatively simple process. But I, but I, I will recognize that the, it's, it is not as, as easy as it was uh, 25 years ago in order to be successful. And I think if you look at those uh, you know, if if you if you, I mean, in the very long run, it may not make any difference, right? Because you you mentioned that as well. I mean, what if we just took a, a system with rules, you know, thirty forty years ago and did nothing and just let it run? I mean, is can we beat that? Maybe not. I don't know, but I will say I think that if you do that, if you keep it that simple and never really evolve, but just keep to some really simple rules, and there are maybe one or two managers that I know of at least that that probably does that. I think the price you pay is not necessarily long-term performance, but it's the volatility it comes with. Then you can go back to David Drews saying is that, well, the most volatile systems are the most robust, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. So if you can live with the volatility, yeah, maybe you can do what we do in a relatively simple way. And in 30, 40, 50 years over that period, you'll do really, really well. But most people can't handle that volatility, and certainly on the client side, they don't want that anymore because they think they can get something that is much safer, lower vol, and gives you the same levels of return. And for short periods of time, that may be true. Um, but in the long run, I mean, there is still a reason, I believe, that so few non-systematic trend-following managers have as long as track records as Chesapeake and Don. I mean, they, you, you just don't see them. But I think that the, uh, I think trend following can be done simply if you're willing to take the volatility it comes with it. But if you've evolved a little bit and 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 allow yourself to embrace, uh, you know, some maybe different techniques, newer techniques, whatever it might be, then it's it's it still works. But it's a little bit more complicated maybe than how we did it back in the '80s. Well said. Well said. Oh, I was intrigued by this uh, article about from one of our competitors, uh, trend follower, oh, what they do other things as well. And this is just a lesson. Their experience in, in 2018 was a 23% loss. Uh, and so how, did they, how are they doing this year? Well, they're doing really well this year. And they, he says in this article, we didn't change the signals or the por portfolio construction methodologies. 
Uh, us blaming tough times on market changes was to fall into retrofitting stories to the, was to fall into retrofitting stories to the facts. Uh, they benefited as much from what it chose not to do as what it as what it chose not to do. So I think uh, it was a great article in the sense that uh, you know sticking to your systems, not making radical yeah. changes, and not walking away from what you believe. Check it. Uh, Look over it, make sure, you know, you still are happy with it, but uh, you're just going to have these bad periods and you need to stick with it. And so, and this is uh, something I wrote about last week about change has its own cost, you know, making changes, it may end up being a right thing to do uh, over the long run, but, or maybe not, but at some point in time, the reason we work, what we do, the reason we need to be so disciplined is because our day in the sun will come. So your inferior, slightly less than perfect system today, if you tinker with it, you know, 2020 might be its year. And I've had that happen where um, we wanted to make major changes uh, after underperforming in 2012. And uh, as we were contemplating making these changes in 13, uh, which we thought were definitely improvements, you know, the 2012 systems were outperforming everything. So we kept delaying these uh, positive changes based on our great research. So, you know, it's just one of those things where wait it out a little bit and uh, there's just a cost. That's all I'm saying. There's a cost of changes and there's a cost, I guess, of not making proper changes, especially if you're not diversified or taking shorts and things like that. So, but, uh, you know, nothing is risk-free when you make changes. No, I mean, that that's really the challenge. And this is actually, I think this is important really important and i think exactly what you went through back then which of course we've been through many times as well i mean that's the experience that investors pay for right meaning yes you'll see newer managers with a shorter track record and their returns looks fantastic right but you cannot backtest experience impossible and making those critical decisions like i mean david harding on record um came out and said, you know, yeah, I've decided to reduce trend, but I won't know until 10 years from now if that was a good decision or a bad decision. And that's exactly right. So um, super important uh, and, uh, and, 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 and investors shouldn't forget how valuable experience is, um, not just when it comes to making changes like that, how you handle big drawdowns, uh, do you panic? Uh, do you, you know, just stick to it? Uh, I know we went on record, uh, or our owner went on record uh, in in the. Um, there's an article written about Don in CTA Intelligence because of our 45th anniversary, and where he went on record saying, you know, we never deviate from the system. But that's just us. It doesn't, you know, doesn't apply to everyone. Some people will make. Um, you know, decisions along the way uh, that are not necessarily based on the system. But that's just what has worked for us over the years. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's for everyone. And, of course, sometimes it comes with, um, you know, more volatility than, than people would uh, like. Yeah, and I think to some degree the positive and negative experiences in life, uh, this is what I was thinking of when you were saying that, um, helps you just follow the system more. Mm. And so maybe, and there's other things, there's better research where there's, you know, living through certain periods and trades where you were thought you were 
uh, too highly leveraged or not diversified enough or too short-term or too long-term, of course, these things will lead to good research projects and improvement. But I think to a large degree, the amount of um, exp the experience we have in uh, the pros and cons of not following our system all the time are usually going to be cons, and they are going to make us feel better. But if you had a robot person who always followed their pretty darn good system and they didn't violate a lot of the rules of trading, then maybe, you know, in hindsight, they could say, okay, I, I had no experience. All I did was follow the rules. I mean, well, that's a very unique person. So I think to some degree the rules and the experiences that we have, if they do nothing other than force us uh, to commit more to following a set of rules, that's that's a hell of a lot of good experience there. Mm, very true. Well said. Um, I've got a few questions uh, that we can dive into, but I'm happy to uh, continue with any further tweets. Oh, let's go to the questions. Okay, cool. First question here is from uh, Michael. Uh, Michael uh, writes, so it's about this theme about um, sample uh, size uh, that we've talked about a few times. Uh, and not over-optimizing results due to too few trades. Um, so one, he says, can the number of trades a system produces be used as a shorthand method for evaluating whether a system is under or over-optimized? If so, then is there a rough guide guideline uh, for number of trades for a given speed? Example, system X trades six month breakout could we compare number of trades to a simple equation such as trades equals speed divided by year to tell us if a system is likely to have been over optimized not entirely sure uh, if i understand fully maybe you do what michael is trying to to um, get us to discuss here um i mean of course i mean okay so so let me just say something here, Michael, uh, maybe it's helpful or not. Um, I mean, clearly, if you have a long-term system that only produces a couple of trades a year, you don't get a lot of, uh, you don't you don't have a big sample size. Then you could apply the same rules to 100 markets or 50 markets. And of course, you get many more trades uh, to, to analyze. But, but I don't think, I mean, you have to take into account that there is the speed or the, the, the length uh, time um, factor that so so you can't necessarily compare in my view uh, that you ha need to have a certain amount of of trades uh, to to have enough uh, of, of your sample if you're comparing a short-term system that produces lots of trades all the time and comparing that to a long-term system you you have to recognize that you're going to get fewer signals uh in 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 the longer term uh, time frames but i think nowadays if you have enough data and enough markets in your portfolio to to test even if you don't want to trade all of them because of maybe account size or whatever it might be you should be able to go back far enough to get a decent uh sample size uh in terms of trades and then you could also argue and i know that argument uh, i've heard that from 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 uh, some of our colleagues in the industry that they don't even go back necessarily to the 80s or the 90s right now because they think that maybe the last 10 years worth of data is 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 enough to give you an idea of that i don't know if i agree or disagree on that i'd love to hear your view on that jerry but um and if you have any other thoughts for mike uh, regarding his questions yeah i'm not a fan of eliminating data i think um that's probably not where you want to go i think sample size is so important and uh you know, we've said many times, 
trading shorter term strategies or shorter as short as possible <clears throat> is preferable because you get more trades to look at historically. But the problem is it's some of the shorter term systems are not very profitable. So you're kind of forced uh, to desire to make money and to have a profitable systems. So you're going to accept systems with uh, fewer trades. But I think uh, one of the things about its question is uh, I think that you just need a, the requisite sample size and whatever that might be in your mind or in your formulas. And then once you have that, I think you can move forward. And some of your systems may have more, uh, a lot more than the minimum, and some may have the minimum. But uh, probably deciding whether the system is robust or curve-fitted is probably, uh, you know, probably not what the sample size is going to tell you um, if it meets that minimum requirement. So I'm not exactly sure if I want to weight the systems or feel better or worse about the systems if they all have the minimum sample size requirement. Uh, <clears throat> I'll probably just just trade them and not uh, try not to trade those that don't have enough trades to look at. Yeah. Well, hopefully that was uh, helpful in some ways, uh, Michael. Thanks for your question, by the way. And if you, if you do want to send us a question, like uh, so many people have done this week, um, we love uh, to hear from you. Just send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we do our best to bring them on the following show um, if we have nothing else uh, special lined up, so to speak, as a guest or something like that. Anyway, um, also got a... Um, an email from from Richard uh, down in Australia. Uh, Richard produces a lot of good stuff in the trend-following world. And it was a long email, and we tried to get it into a question. I'm not sure we entirely succeeded in in, in getting it into a question, but I do want to to just uh, make a little, uh, read a little bit part of the email that you sent, uh, Richard. I think it's important for people. I mean, you build your own systems and, and a lot of them, and you say, I track the performance of the longer-term um, funds that operate in a global, diversified, systematic trend-following space and do not see any deterioration in the long-term uh, compound average growth rate post-2000 in this grouping. So I scratch my head in trying to determine what these analysts are seeing, unless they are cherry-picking shorter time periods as a wealth-building exercise, any serious investor or allocator must look at the performance measures over the longer-term horizon. Otherwise, how are, are they any different to speculative gamblers? So, but again, Richard, if you if you want to send us a specific question, we'll do our best to get that in, but we appreciate the, the support and all the stuff you do on your side. Then we uh, have a question from Bing. Uh, and uh, let me see if there was something in the intro I need to get into. No, let's go uh, straight to the question. And that is, if a trader has a rules-based methodology that one, generates a positive expected value, then applied over long term and uh, the full business cycle uh, that covers both high and low volatility regimes and two follows prudent risk control that risks no more than three to four percent of AUM per trade <laughs> then questions one does position sizing really matter why not go all in uh, all the time on every trade signal if you can maintain prudent risk control of risking no more than three to four percent of AUM per trade 
And two, during high volatility regimes, I found that it psychologically to be easier to scale into the positions rather than to go all in is maintaining uh, psychological composure, uh, the fundamental reason why everyone says sizing is important. Uh, and then he thanks us for the podcast. So thanks so much, Bing, for your question. I think this is an interesting one because clearly you have a different view on what um, uh, you know risk tolerance maybe than than what we have. Um, and uh, just from from my perspective on this, uh, Bing, I mean the problem is that of course if we knew that all our trades were winning trades, yeah, you could certainly risk more, but. Most of the trades we do are still losing trades, and we don't know how they're going to show up. We don't know the sequence of how these trades show up. And therefore, even if they make money in the long run, if you get into a bad run where the sequence is lose, 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 and there's no winners in there, then risking 3 to 4% will basically put you out of business in a short space of time. That's the challenge you have, and this is why we keep saying trade small because even if you see mostly winning trades in your system, I mean, that's fine, that's great, but it doesn't really tell you if that, if that sequence is going to continue in the future. So, um, so, so you want to be careful. I mean, if you're only trading two markets, okay, fine, but if you're trading like we do, 50, 60, 100 markets, you just can't risk that much per trade, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so without knowing those kind of details, um, it's that's hard for me to to answer about the high volatility and the uh, psych, you know psychological side of things. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think psychology is really important in any. I mean, certainly if you're starting out as a trader yourself, uh, you know, psychology is what's gonna trick you up, and in your emotions are what's gonna make it really difficult for you to stick with the systems when you're in a 30, 40 percent drawdown. Uh, suddenly, um, so that's another reason why. Um, and this is something that goes for investors as well. One of the reasons why our industry have become lower vol overall is probably because the types of investors that uh, invest in these strategies, they don't want to see these huge drawdowns. Um, we just can't eliminate them. We know they're going to come from time to time. And we probably think that if we keep trading long enough, the biggest drawdown is going to be ahead of us, not behind us. So... Again, psychology is important. If you uh, if you if you if you end up in a situation where you can't stick to your system, that's a really bad place to be in, uh, and that's another sign that you you've been overtrading. Anyway, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of when I first learned about trend following when I was in a public accounting in the early '80s. And I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I learned about futures and commodities and going short. And it was just check, check, check. Amazing. So I thought, you know, I just put into my calculator what happens if I compound 100% a year, every year. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a very wealthy person. So I think it's great to have that, uh, you know, Commitment and that uh, and, and that question, you know, it's it's kind of like if if this, then why not uh, that? And so, well, this is a little bit more complicated. So, um, I think one of the things that has happened, and this is just my opinion, and I've said it many times, <clears throat> um, it's the reason we, in order to stay af to make money for clients, we've had to become longer term, and the drawdowns are going to be larger, but the systems are profitable, and so. And then, as you mentioned, in this age of uh, 
zero inter low interest rates, zero interest rates, negative rates, uh, the desire for a 10% return is much higher than uh, a 20% return or greater with the accompanying drawdowns. So everything is leading us towards uh, trading smaller because of the systems and because of the risk appetite that people have. And according to Moritz and I, um, the drawdown it should be, the max drawdown should be around at least twice as much as the annual return. So I think in a nutshell, if you do a back test and you're risking three to 4% at some point in time during the back test, you will have a more than a hundred percent drawdown. I mean, I think that's where the rubber meets the road right there, or we'd be doing it and we'd be, I'd be, shoot, I'd be risking 1% or 2%, but I don't even do that. So I think that the amount, so maybe this uh, uh, person who gave us this question has a bet, much better system, a way to uh, implement a risk control overlay that prevents these major drawdowns two times the the annual return. And so maybe that's where the, it all is, which I don't, and I don't, so I don't know how to answer other than I think 50 basis points is about right, <laughs> uh, given yeah. the, the, the look back period and the the type of systems that I think are profitable these days have to be more six to 12 month look backs versus for me, it used to be, you know, uh, two weeks. And of course it depends on the system and the strategy, but it also depends on how many markets you trade. Um, so, uh, but hopefully being, it was um, useful to get our thoughts on this. Uh, next question is from Jacob. Uh, Jacob um, um, is happy about the uh, explanations on ATR and risk management from the last few weeks we've done. Appreciate the comment, Jacob. Um, and Jacob asked, uh, I have a question regarding strategies that warehouse risk. Can you give examples of warehousing risk other than strategies that sell volatility? Um, well, I mean, this is, again, this is just my interpretation of it. Um, but for me, a lot of these relative value strategies, um, like what we saw, I guess, with long-term capital, where they were trying to, um, you know, make money from small inefficiencies, but with very high, high leverage, and it all looks very smooth until something breaks, something that hasn't showed up in the data set before um, shows up, and 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 then suddenly you realize that you have a lot more risk uh, in your portfolio than you ever imagined. And the whole thing blows up uh, or, or nearly blows up in, in other cases. I think what I mean by that is that I think some of these strategies can look safe, but actually they're warehousing a lot of risks that you may not see. While what we do is um, we, because we're directionally based, we, we, we mark to market our trades and positions every day. So we know exactly what the risk is and we show that. It shows up in the daily volatility. They don't look safe necessarily to some people but they're not risky they're just you know recognizing the risk on a daily basis so that's what i mean at least when i think about these strategies a lot of them are the convergent strategies meaning people who bet on stability of some kind what we do in our strategy is referred to as divergent so we're betting on change uh, rather than stability and I think for me, that's maybe one way you can differentiate between whether you're rare warehouse housing risk or whether you're recognizing risk on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a good explanation. I think uh, uh, reverting back to the mean type things, I think uh, can get into a lot of trouble and can show short term or long term 
uh, profits, but they're sort of uh, set up to really lose a lot. And so in a short period of time, so I would uh, file it under the category, the opposite of trend following small losses, less than 50% winning trades and big profitable outliers. So it's the opposite of that more than 50% winning trades and uh, small winners and you get crushed on uh, the potential outliers and when it doesn't revert to the mean uh, warehousing I, I know that can I read that on Twitter once I'm not sure I fully understand that uh, warehousing something are we where are they warehousing it maybe I'm not sure what that means or if that's true but it's out there a bad thing is out there when you don't take small losses and you're not in gear with the trend and you're not uh, trying to profit from large moves yeah hopefully that was uh, helpful Jacob then we move on to Nathan. This question actually is in relationship to a question or a comment that uh, Moritz made uh, last week on last week's podcast about um, crude oil WTI. But I think we can answer it anyway, even uh, if um, Moritz is not here. So the comment that Moritz was making was he that he sees no trend in WTI as it just bounces in a range. And then you write, uh, Nathan, but when I put up a chart, price has pretty much only been up for the for two months since the beginning of October. It made me wonder how we define or construct the parameters for a trend. Perhaps Thus, perhaps on a 240-minute chart, crude oil has a very easy-to-see trend, but on a daily or weekly, it becomes more convoluted. How can we reconcile the various time frames that show a trend versus those that have no clear signal within the same instrument. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you you kind of touch upon it yourself and, and answer it almost. It's all about time frame. It's, you know, it's how you look at things. Uh, what may be a short-term trend for some uh, is a nowhere near a trend for others. Uh, and I think since both Moritz, Jer, and I, or, or with the firms uh, we, we uh, represent, um, we are long-term traders, so uh, oil bouncing between fifty and sixty dollars for uh, a number of months uh, for us it's not really a trend. It's it's a range. Um, we wanted to break out and move from sixty to a hundred, or from fifty to down to twenty-five again. That that is something we can get uh, excited about. Um, but on you know the good thing is there are lots of other managers out there who do the short term and and play that side, and and they may be enjoying uh, what's been going on in in, uh, in crude oil for the last few months. Um, and that's fine. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're probably all trend followers to some extent. It's just a matter of how you define the time frame. Um, but we need, everyone needs some kind of directional move in one or two instruments, uh, you know, um, in order to make make money. They just, most of people, you know, certainly in the in the people where it's relative value, they don't consider themselves as trend followers and neither would I, but they are looking at, you know, some kind of directional move. It's just in relationship to something else. We just look at it in the individually and we want the market to uh, to, to move uh, for a certain period of time uh, and, and ideally with a certain price move that we that is big enough for us to capture. Yeah, I'd say that's uh, using breakouts, you know, and moving averages and with a 20 day look back, I used to do that in the eighties and it was great. It doesn't work anymore. But I think that some people who look at 20 day look backs, it does work for them, but they're not using the breakout or the moving average alone. Like 
I would, or I did. So if you look at that, you know, Crude's rallied. I had a big down day after your question, I guess, was submitted uh, Friday. But, um, you know, if you look at the last big uptrend in 17 and that crashed it towards the third quarter of 18, uh, there was many 20-day, uh, uh, you know, downtrends in that trend. So that's the problem. The markets are choppy. It makes a 20-day low. It doesn't mean anything. It goes back to the highs. It went back to the highs at least three times, you know, in that uh, in that year and a half trend in 17 and 18. So that's what you're seeing on these back tests is that uh, the 20 day doesn't work. And so what's interesting though is, well, um, when you decide to lengthen your look back, uh, what did you do? I looked at the same data that I looked at for the shorter term look back and the longer term look back worked as well or better. And it continued to work over the shorter term data. So it wasn't that the long-term lookbacks all of a sudden got uh, profitable. No, they were always as good or better than the shorter-term lookbacks. I mean, not risk-adjusted, but they were making money and they were making profit. And the open trade profit now um, is uh, more noise in the trades and the trends. And uh, those systems uh, are more noisy and have bigger drawdowns. But we've maintained to keep the profitability. I mean, that's your first rule, right? I mean, you, it's great to have a shorter term look back and more sample size and less drawdowns, but it doesn't make money. So that's the dilemma. What are you going to do? Lengthen your look back or something else? Fall target is popular. Money management overlay somehow. Not robust parentheses, but that's popular as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for the question, uh, Nathan. Hope that was uh, helpful. Next question, all the way from Canada. Chat writes in. And again, thanks very much, Chat, for your kind uh, words about the podcast. The question I would like to ask each of you is how do you each go about building up to your full size uh, in a given position once you get an entry signal? Are you simply all in based on your risk per trade or do you start small with a quote-unquote feeler position and add to the trade as it goes in your favor? Uh, if you guys have any statistical backtests around this topic, I'd love to hear those thoughts uh, as well. Let me start with you on this one, Jerry. Um, I know we've touched upon this before. Well, yeah, we've touched on this before. I set my max position um, prior to the trade. Yeah, so I know what my max position is going to be, and I sort of spread it out a little bit. Uh, but um, in the sense that uh, I'll piece it in a little bit, I'll you know, a few different entries and exit points, uh, systems that should probably most of the time get in at three, you know, at different areas and then uh, exit at different places as well. So that's how we do it. Uh, we don't really uh, alter the plan or have a new plan once the trade gets profitable or the first two buys are profitable. We, we sort of know what we're going to do from the get-go. Sometimes uh, we only buy one and it goes lower and sometimes we buy two and uh, then it goes lower. And sometimes we buy all three or four or five, whatever, and then it still goes lower. So we, we piece it in and we lose on all of them. So such is life. But diversifying your time frames somewhat uh, works well. Yeah, so just to, to add to that chat, so essentially what Jerry's saying, and we do the same. So we know roughly how much risk we want to take on, on, on in a given market, right? So that's your starting point. And then the question is, how many 
smaller confirmations do you need in order to get to a full position? So we don't regard it as feeler positions or trades, but essentially the shortest timeframes will be the ones that are getting get hit first and and then you start building your position and and the longer term timeframes uh, of of your parameter uh, sets will be the last ones to uh, to get in so you just build it up following the rules there's no um, magic to it um what you can say i think is there might be a bit of a difference in so so by only having say you could say the the extreme you could have one entry point and you get full all in or you could have 20 entry points and you get in over 20 uh, smaller steps and of course if you get into a great trend early on that's obviously going to be uh, better to get in straight away but at least in my experience doing it step by step longer term uh, is probably the way to go about it if your account size is big enough to do so uh, simply for the reason that if you have a lot of and we will go through these periods from time to time where there's a lot of uh, false breakouts or noise or whipsawing however you want to determine it if you only have one or two or three uh, entry points um, you can lose a lot of money in a short period of time and um, because you get fully in and then you have to get out again and then you might get fully short and back again and so on and so forth so i think that's generally why we also on our side like to have um you know a, a larger number of of entry uh, points now of course it doesn't mean that sometimes some of these points can't be hit on the same day and you do end up getting in relatively quickly but it's not necessarily how it's structured and so just keep that in mind again depending on a little bit of again on your on your system i mean if it's a shorter term system you obviously can't wait maybe had to have 20 confirmations but if it's a longer term system like we trade you can certainly have multiple entry points to before you're at a full position but it's still the full position needs to be predetermined before you uh, start building it up so thanks for that chat uh, last question for today uh, it's a couple of questions from chris chris who has written in before so nice to hear from you again chris he starts off I want to congratulate Jerry about his UV, you you know what this means, UVA football team beating VA Tech this week. Oh, I was there. Thank you. I flew up uh, Friday morning, 7 a.m. to Charlottesville, got there within a, an hour before the game, flew back uh, Saturday morning. And it was, I was wondering, you know, in the fourth quarter, why did I do this? What a mistake. <laughs> but, you know, in all sports, Niels, uh, you have to put yourself out there. Uh, you can miss a lot of fun uh, once-in-a-lifetime events, hopefully not <clears throat> once-in-a-lifetime for this, but so. if you don't risk it, you've got to take some risk in life and uh, sports and the markets. You've got to put it out there and uh, to get the reward. And so as many times I have uh, shaken my head, why did I put myself in this heartbreaking situation only to be rescued in the last few minutes? So that's what happened on, on Friday. So thank okay. you. Yes. Good for you. Good. All right. Well, then let's let's get back to the the trading side of your question, Chris. Uh, I've been developing my system for years and been trading it live for months now. As the account grows, I add markets to the portfolio. I have a list of thirty markets that I want to trade, but the account size restricts the number of markets available. The spreadsheet that I keep indicates that when the system is running completely and trading in all 30 markets, there will still be a lot of money on the sideline. What should I do with this cash? 
And then that's one question. Second question, also has the margin requirement for Bitcoin changed? I don't uh, look at the margin requirements often, but it seems that the requirement went up substantially. So let's do deal with the Bitcoin first because I have no idea um, and because we don't trade it. But Jerry, you may know whether it's changed. I don't keep up with that. I know um, our margin requirements are low, 10 or 15%, and we put that cash in treasuries. Um, it's a it's sort of a something that uh, it's not that relevant. I think if you have that amount of money that's left over, then you should put that money in treasuries. And uh, it's irrelevant, uh, your margin to equity ratio, although if it's 40 or 50%, you're probably the same person taking that 3 to 4% loss per trade of your AUM. So trade smaller and have even more money that's going to earn interest. But I, I know that uh, Bitcoin traditionally at the brokers have had uh, high margin, short Bitcoin as well. That it, I think that there's a difference between being long and short. I think short, might, the, the margin might be a, a lot greater. But if we trade 80 markets or 90 markets and one of them is Bitcoin, one of them uh, has uh, crazy margin requirements, that's okay, right? We're going to not be worried too much about it. We're just going to pay that increase margin and not care because the other 89 or 99 markets have low margin requirements. So not, not an issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let me put it this way, Chris. I mean, if you're just trading your own money and, and you have uh, lots of cash still spare, I mean, that's a great problem to have. And uh, as Jerry suggests, I mean, keep them safe. Uh, you, you may need some of it for, for margin later on, but keep it liquid, keep it safe. Now, if you're talking about it as a business, right, what Chesapeake has to do, what Don has to do, I mean, we have to look after hundreds of millions of dollars of our clients' money that we don't use for margin. So that for, for that, we need to have a real plan, right? So in our case, we use a cash manager. So, uh, you know, some managers do it themselves. Um, in our case, we outsource it. And there, are some, there will be some guidelines for what the cash can be invested in, which is typically... Um, you know, government bonds uh, or highly, highly rated corporate bonds. You, you know, the money that investors invest, you want to keep safe first and foremost. They're not the the the, the spare cash is not. We, we don't look at it as something that should produce a return. We we need to keep them safe. Uh, we saw during the financial crisis that banks went under, money market funds froze, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you just don't want to be in a situation like that. So. If you're a CTA and, and, and or any other hedge fund and you have lots of cash you need to to look after for your clients, um, first and foremost, make sure they're safe. They need to be in liquid instruments, um, but don't take any chances with them. Don't get tempted by higher rates of return in, in some, um, you know, silly stuff. It's not liquid the day you need the liquidity for sure. Um, so just stay with it uh, in, in, in super highly liquid fixed income instruments. Yeah. Okay, those were the question for this week. I will quickly go through uh, the performance, which will almost be the performance for November, uh, not quite, um, because this is as of Thursday evening. Uh, so we still need Friday to know how the month uh, finished. I think directionally we'll be fine, but I think Friday was a bit of a down day, so you're probably going to have to subtract a little bit from from the numbers I'm going to go through. And then we can see, Jerry, if there's any more freestyle content we want to 
dig into afterwards before we finish uh, this week. But anyways, the B top 50 index as of Thursday was up 1.22 for November, up 741 for the year. Sokgen CTA index up 1.26 for the November, up 7.34 for the, the year. The Sokgen trend uh, index up 1.63 and up 10.7 for the year. The Sokgen short-term trainers index looks to have a good month, up 1.10 up 3.18 for the year and the bridge alternatives index up 1.85 percent for the month of november and up 10.49 year to date 2019 so we're still one month uh still to to come um before we know how the year ended um since it's just you and me jerry um do you have any um thoughts ideas topics Spur of the moment, um, something, something you want to bring up? I think uh, next week uh, I want to spend some time on some uh, articles and papers that came out this week concerning um, shorts and maybe shorts or drag. And we talk a lot about shorts on this uh, podcast and how much we love our short trades and they add diversification and risk control. So there was an article, a paper out recently the, the study was uh, don't you know shorts are a problem don't do shorts so maybe it was stocks only maybe that's the case for stocks but i'll look into that more and we'll talk maybe more next week about um shorts in general i think that's a great idea by all means uh, send it to moritz and i and we'll do our best to uh, read up on it as well but i think that's a good uh, good idea to have some topics i um actually uh, met with some people we've been referring to a lot this week, uh, the good folks at Epic Capital in Dublin. And they, of course, are the authors of a great recent paper on dealing with that deals with some of the challenges that, that our industry has been uh, accused for being subject to. Um, and um, I think we got, I think I managed to get uh, a bit of a buy-in to uh, get uh, one of the uh, happy folks to come on the podcast um, um, maybe before Christmas who knows or maybe early next year to talk about that a little bit uh, more in depth I think it's such an important piece of research that they've done I encourage everyone to uh, get a copy of it uh, read it and um, but anyway let's hope we can discuss that in more detail as well and of course if you have any other ideas um, I know we had a couple of suggestions to get Andreas Klino on the show so Andreas if you're listening you know, reach out. Let's uh, get it going. Otherwise, I will reach out to you. Yeah, any other things that you think could be fun, interesting, um, educational? Um, we're open-minded to uh, to this. So, with all of that said, let's uh, wrap up this uh, week's conversation. We hope you have enjoyed it. And um, if you like what you heard, of course, um, we are always uh, very grateful if you would leave us a rating and review in iTunes. Uh, they really do help. And, of course, you can share the, these episodes with a like-minded friend. Um, you know, one share is, is, is fine by us. So uh, from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week and a good start to the festive season. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.